who sure have ambitions. So let us read from God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will walk properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful that you have brought us to this place. You, we are grateful that your spirit is in and among us working to bring glory to your name, honor to your son's name. Lord, as we learn from your word, we pray that you convict us of your truth, that you show us the value your word has in conforming us into the image of your Son, Christ Jesus, to which you have called us and you have saved us. Father, we give you this time to learn from you, to hear from you. May your spirit be at work in the eyes and the ears and the hearts of those who are hearing this so that it brings glory to your name and growth and maturity to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Every so often I know I go through and I look at some statistics. Um, this week I looked at uh, statistics and it's just a Google search and you can go look at that and look at it yourself um, in terms of what is your ambition for your generation? What is the ambition of Generation Z, um, which is most of your generation, if not all of your generation? Um, what are the things that Generation Z years, your generation, born between 1997 and 2012, um, how do they define success? What is their ambition? And here are the three top things that they consider to be important to improve their lives, according to this um, article by Northwestern Mutual. Number one was having more money. Number two was being more self-confident or self-reliant. And number three was doing work that you enjoy. So number one, 50%, number two, 27%, number three, 24%, which the math really doesn't add up because 24 and 27 is 51, 51 plus 50 is 101. So somewhere there's a margin of error, so don't quote me on that. I'm just telling you what, it, what, it, what is here. But the number one response from Generation Z's is enjoying your career. They want to enjoy their career while making more money and being more self-reliant. That is the ambition of the Generation Zers. That's what's out there. And if we are honest, that is probably what you are striving to do. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Right? You go to school, 
Most of you are being accepted or applying or thinking about college, but some of you are already in college and picking your, um, your majors and working hard towards achieving that so that you can be successful, which having money, being self-confident and self-reliant, being independent and doing work you enjoy, you pick all of that. Nothing inherently wrong with that. And with that being said, there's a couple of positions when you are ambitious, and I, this is why I want you to hear me. A couple of positions regarding ambition in the church as Christians, right? The first one is, you know what? Be all you can be. Be as ambitious as possible. Just be self-driven, self-reliant. Just go at it, and you can be all you can be. Right, that Disney world, Disney movie type of deals. Like, listen to your heart and just follow your heart and be as ambitious as you can be. You can be all you want to be. This is one side of the spectrum in this position. And the other one, most, if we are honest and most uh, familiar with us, is, you know, ambition is sinful. Unless your ambition is to conform to the traditional expectations of the church. So unless your ambition is to be a pastor, unless your ambition is to be a choir director, unless your ambition is to be a Sunday school teacher, all other ambition is sinful. And then, you know, this, there's the other side of the spectrum. Right? There's two positions at war here. And yet, we see from God's word here, that tells us that there is an ambition, to make something an ambition. Where do we end up? Do I pursue my professional goals, my earthly needs and necessities? Do I pursue the American dream, so to speak, at the cost of Christ? And my spiritual life, or do my spiritual life is in terms of whatever that box is that I put God in, is that the only thing that matters? So I should throw away all of my ambitions. And I am pretty sure you have thought through this. If you have not thought through this, you will eventually at one point. So hear it, or maybe you are there now. So when you are listening to this, you're going to be in one of these three camps. Either you have thought through, thought through this or thought about this, or you will eventually, or you're thinking about it right now. So either way, let's see what God's Word tells us about being ambitious. Because in terms of the church, what is the church's ambition supposed to look? Let's first and foremost, like we do always, let's define ambition. What is ambition? What would the Thessalonians have understood when Paul writes to them and say, make it your ambition? What is the idea of ambition? The idea of ambition for us in this time is to have more money, to be more self-confident and self-reliant and do stuff that you want. 
Is that what the Bible defines ambition as? Here's the definition of ambition, which is the pursuit and the seeking after with a deep desire and sense of affection. So you are pursuing something, you're seeking after something when we are being ambitious. But you're not just doing it because somebody told you to do it. You have this deep desire from, that comes from within that makes you pursue that goal. And that desire is something that you love, that you are affectionate towards. The way that is expressed in our culture is by going against the grain, right? Break the mold. Go against the status quo today. Right? Be innovative and dynamic. Stand out. Be your authentic self, etc. That's how you show your ambition. That's what our culture today tells us, that our ambition is expressed by breaking the mold, by going against the mold, by, by going against the grain. You see commercials like there's a whole bunch of people walking one way and then you've got to walk the other way and you're the only one standing and that is a sign of ambition, you know, kind of like the way that church is done even. Um, we got to make it more preppy and, and, you know, like more interactive. Let's get everybody engaged. Let's make it high energy. Let's, let's get everybody involved, in, you know, because the way that church was done for the last 1900 years, you know, the traditional thing, it's, Tradition is bad. That's, that's our ambition. Be innovative. Be dynamic. But what does God's word say? Because he does tell us in the present to have an ambition. Make it your ambition. So since ambition comes from within, and to tie it to everything that we have been talking about so far, a godly ambition, the church's ambition, flows out of the will of God for you to be sanctified. It does not come from your own self. You don't just become ambitious because something inside of you, whatever your flesh desires out of your own willpower. Ambition flows out of the will of God. This is where we find in chapter 4, verse 3. What is the will of God for your life? It's your sanctification. So this ambition is flowing out from God's. So when Paul says in verse 10, in verse 11, make it your ambition, that ambition inherently is coming out of God's will for the Christian's life for sanctification. And this will is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because it's God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Verse 8 in chapter 4. And this ambition is also displayed in how you love one another. Which we saw last week. So we just kind of 
walked through the last three weeks of sermons. Now Paul is saying, make it your ambition. How is the ambition displayed? By the way you love your brothers. How does that love empowered? By the Holy Spirit. Why would the Holy Spirit empower that to reverse engineer it? So you see it, I'm working backwards here. Because it is God's will for your life that you are sanctified, that you are set aside, set apart, and being holy, being Christ-like. Out of all of that flows this ambition. You are to pursue certain things. This is what Paul is saying. You are to pursue certain things, but they are not to be done from your inherent ambition. As a matter of fact, we saw last week that in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, that don't do anything out of selfish ambition, right? Or vainglory, but in, with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Do you notice that first portion of that verse? Do nothing from selfish ambition. We are commanded to do things, to be ambitious, to have ambition, but yet it's not selfish ambition. It's not self-promotion. It's not something that comes from within. It has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit according to the will of God for you to be sanctified, which displays itself by the way you love one another. So if you want to discern whether or not your ambition is a godly ambition, Here's what we see. So what exactly does Paul write for the Thessalonians? What exactly does God desire his church to have ambition? And here is the outline, which we will follow. It's right there, drawn out of verse 11. Paul gives us these three prescriptions regarding our ambition that will result in us reaping two major benefits, relying on the sovereignty of God. What are these three prescriptions? Leading a quiet life, attending to your own business, and working with your own hands. Notice these things are honorable things that a Christian sets as a lofty goal. This is what your ambition should be. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's where the law of ambition comes, right? L-A-W, that's kind of the acronym if you caught on that, in our subtitle. Leading a quiet life attending to your own business, and working with your hands. These are things that you should strive to have as a lofty goal. This is the highest ambition a Christian individually and as a church could have. At first glance, they don't seem like that lofty, that, that extraordinary, right? There's no, nothing groundbreaking in these three prescriptions. 
yet God's word prescribes it for us. Not only he prescribes it for us, I want to draw your attention that this is a command. I want you to look down at the last part of verse 11. Notice what Paul says after he gives these three prescriptions. Notice how he finishes it. Just as we commanded you. There's a forceful word there. This, is, this has an apostolic command attached to it. This is not a suggestion. This is not an advice. This is not kind of like, hey, by the way, you know, this is, this is not something that is a choice for the church. Just as we have commanded you, lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your hands. So I want to draw your attention to the fact that this is a command. This, these three prescriptions are a command. However, you might be asking, if you are anything like me, why would God command such a seemingly underwhelming thing to be ambitious? Why wouldn't our ambition to be, you know, going out there and touching people and um, spreading the gospel and healing people and delivering them from bondage? Like, why would God say, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life? That seems like so common, so ordinary, so underwhelming. Why would God command us to do that? Let's go through each one and each one of the prescriptions and see what may seemingly look underwhelming is actually something that we need to strive and ask God and trust in His sovereignty to accomplish. What does leading a quiet life mean? Leading a quiet life doesn't mean just be quiet verbally. I mean, it does mean that, right? So it's, but it means more. It doesn't mean you, you ought to just be silent at all times. The whole time that you're alive, don't even utter two words. That's not what it means. It means to draw less attention to yourself and to your individual circumstances to have less commotion in and around your life. So stop drawing too much attention to yourself. Don't be too loud in the way that you live. That's the thing. This flashiness, drawing attention to yourself and making yourself be more than what you actually are. Or maybe it's not just in your person, but your circumstances. Don't draw too much attention in your circumstances. Be like John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verse 29 and 30, who says, He who is the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly 
because of the bridegroom's voice. Now he is talking about, in, in this case, the, the, the bridegroom is Jesus, the bride is the church or uh, his elect, the, and it's John talking about, it's not me that has the bridegroom, I am, the friend is John, the Baptist, and this illustration. So the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because the bridegroom's, uh, bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Notice what he says in verse 30. He, the bridegroom, Christ, must increase, but I, the friend of the bridegroom, must decrease. This is a response to John the Baptist in the context of John chapter 3. It's, it's his disciples that came to him and said, Hey, the guy that you baptized, he's out there baptizing people and people are following him. Well, what say you? He's drawing more people than you are. Even some of our disciples are now his disciples. What, what's, what say you? He's like, I must decrease and he must increase. It's not about me. It's about God. So leading a quiet life. If you want to see it illustrated, is seen in John the Baptist in terms of not drawing too much attention to yourself and to your circumstances, to not have so much commotion in your life. And if you look at the, the Greek word for this, this is referring to the life in the mind. A life in your mind that is lived in quiet. Your mind right now is loud. Most of us have so many things going on in our minds right as we speak that we can't even hear what the Word of God is teaching us. And when we go here, our minds are always restless. We're always thinking about what's next. What's the next high? What's the next thing that, that's going to excite me? What's the next thing that I'm going to get challenged with? What's the next? And our minds are always racing. Paul saying, make it your ambition to have a quiet life in your mind. And the life that you live out of your mind comes from a mind that is not full of commotion. And out of that comes what? All of your anxieties, your stressors, all of these things are coming from your mind. So what Paul is talking about when he says, lead a quiet life, he's saying lead a life that is peaceful, tranquil, still-minded. Be still, my soul. We read and we sang. We reminded ourselves today, we reminded our soul to be still, to be quiet. That is the ambition of a Christian life. But as a Christian living in this world that is falling, there's obviously a three-pronged attack on your life. You know this. The flesh is weak, and therefore it wars against the spirit that lives in you. The world is corrupted and ran by Satan, and therefore it, it, it wants to pressure you 
and then there's, there's Satan himself that is constantly assaulting you and attacking you and tempting you over and over again. And as a Christian living in this world, with these three things attacking you constantly, how can you live a quiet life? It's very difficult. You see, it's not as it sounds. It's like quiet life. That's easy to do. Why is it so underwhelming? No, it's hard. You cannot live a quiet life as a Christian in this world, in this fallen world, with these three things attacking you, your mind is always going to be in tumult. There's going to be oceans and mountains and everything else that David wrote in Psalm 46 in our scripture reading. There's war going on around you and about you and, and all these things. And it's not the easiest thing to live a quiet life. So this is not no ordinary ambition. You know this because you live this. You know this because you have friends that live this constantly living in this hectic lifestyle. Yet the prescription for the church is to draw less attention to yourself and to draw more attention to Christ, to be still and know that God is sovereign. You can apply that to any of your circumstances. How do you do that? Let's consider the second prescription, which is attending to your own business. Mind your own business. Again, a really seemingly simple and ordinary command that we see. Mind your own business. This is supposed to be my ambition? God, come on. I want to be helpful to others. I want to change the world. That ought to be something. You would, you would expect God's command for you to be change the world. Go out and be something. But here he says, mind your own business. Attend to your own business. How do you then reconcile this in the context of your, the church? How do I mind my own business and love my brother? Wouldn't that, in a way, make me go and know your business? Or make you come and know my business? Are we to live and, and love one another? By regarding one another more important than ourselves? Wouldn't that mean that we have to somehow be involved in the lives of others? I even said, get to know each other, live life together. Let me into your life and, uh, and, and ask me questions and challenge me. That seems contradictory a little bit. How do I mind? my own business and still love my brother truly 
How do we love one another while at the same time minding our own business? Good question. What does it mean to attend to one's own business? Knowing that may give us a better insight, which means minding your own business doesn't mean ignore everybody around you. Service is over, you get up, you walk out. Next, next week you come in, service is over, you get up, you walk out. Service is over. And you never, that's not what minding your own business means. What Paul is talking about here is to perform the unique affairs that are specific to each individual. There are affairs, there are things that make you who you are. There are qualities about you that God has designed and instilled in you that are not in me. Each individual has his own individual qualities that are specific to himself or to herself. So worry about that. Perform that to the best of what God has given you. Excel in that way. That's what it means to attend to your own business. Actively perform the unique affairs that are specific and particular to you. Notice how this may even fulfill the particular purpose of Christ to build his church as a body. How, does, how is the church described? Paul refers to it as a body of Christ. And Christ said, I will build my church. And how does Christ build his church? Notice what Paul says in, to the Corinthians in Corinthians chapter 12 and 27. Uh oh. Somehow that didn't make it up there. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You notice that? You are Christ's body but individually, your members. And then if you know anything about the context, and this was a topic of our Bible study when I first got here a few months ago, we were talking about how the church as a body has individual members, and my whole body cannot, have, cannot just be an eye, because then I wouldn't be able to hear you. My whole body couldn't just be an ear. Then I wouldn't be able to see you. Right? So the, for the whole body to function, the ear has to do what the ear is supposed to do. The eyes are supposed to be doing what the eyes are supposed to be doing. My fingers have to do the same things that my fingers are supposed to be doing. My legs have to hold me up and my, my arms have to move in a way everything matters. 
but each are individual members, just like you are. You notice how minding your own business or attending to your own business does not mean that you have no kind of affiliation with the rest of your body. You are to, if you were an eye, you are supposed to be the best eye ever. If you are a nose, you're supposed to smell. If you're an ear, you're supposed to hear, excel in hearing. And as a result of your hearing, now you can contribute to the rest of the body because you heard something. Because you saw something, you can contribute to the rest of the body. So attending your business means perform what God has uniquely given to you individually. And Peter says the same thing, by the way. You are, you also, as in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. This is another description of the church. You notice you are being built up as a spiritual house. How do you build a house? Well, right now we build a house with plywood and, and all kinds of lumber and stuff like that. But it's, it's and then you might have concrete and what have you. But in, in Peter's time, you actually took stones and put one stone on top of another stone on top of another stone. And you have to do it in a certain way so that the stone doesn't fall over. There's a cornerstone where you start in the foundation and you build up one stone at a time. And you have to fit them together. This is how we're being built up. You are an individual stone. A single stone that is being now built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. To offer up a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in the context of what we're talking about in terms of our ambition, we are to be the best stone. Now, I'm not saying work really, really hard so you can be the best stone. Again, this ambition flows out of God's will for you to be sanctified, empowered by His own Spirit. So this is not something that you go out there and, and, and work hard so that you can be the best stone. This is what God does in you and through you. And your part in this is your obedience to God's will. And the pursuit of excellence through obedience, this is where you are. So in other words, your individual particular affair is performed in a spiritual, God-glorifying, Christ-honoring, biblical, spirit-led way. This is what you are to strive to do. This is your ambition. I'm going to say it again. As individuals, as ones who possess this particular, unique affair, 
You are to perform this in a way that is spiritual, that is filled by God's Spirit, that is led by God's Spirit, that is God-honoring. What am I doing? Am I minding my business? Am I attending my business in a way that it glorifies God? That it, is it honoring Christ? Is it biblical? That's what it means. To attend to your own business does not play out to be a very ordinary ambition, does it? It's not as underwhelming when you add those things up for it to be performed in a spiritual way, in God-glorifying way, in Christ-honoring way, in a biblical way, in a spirit-led way. That does not come naturally to us. It might even be easier to be the best programmer or the best athlete or the best engineer or the best doctor or the best whatever, fill in the blank. It might even come easier for us to be the best psychologist or the, the best accountant out there. That ambition might even be more achievable than to actually lead a quiet life and attend to our own business in a way that it glorifies God. Because all of this is handled by the sovereign hand of God. You notice that your life is allotted to you and to, to the very time, to the very place, to the very circumstance you are born. That God has designed that. Where you are born, when you are born, when you will die, what you will choose to, to pursue, all of those things, God is sovereign over that. God is in control of over that. The way God will use you is unique. But it's not isolated from, your body, from the body. So how should we live? We should live not in a very intrusive and meddling and divisive and manipulative way. That's not what it means. But in a way, it glorifies God. Now let's quickly go through this third prescription as time is getting away from us. Which is to work with your own hands. Again, seemingly a trivial command. Work with my own hands. Of course, I knew I had to work. But what is the attitude of work that you have and your generation have and, and really any generation have? I can't wait to retire is the most common phrase among those of us that work hard. My son a few weeks ago said, oh, yeah, I'll talk to Mr. Such and Such. And he was a friend of mine. He said, he's going to retire by the time he's 50. What about you, Dad? Do you want to retire early too? I said, for what? Most people, I understood what he meant. Most people want to retire because they can't stand the fact that they have to work. Yet, we do know we all have to work. 
That's why you go to school. That's why you learn, so that you can work and make money and pay bills and live and marry and have kids. And then they do the same thing. It just seems to be a common thing. And God, here in these two verses, continues to command us to do things, to make it our ambition to do these normal, common things. But have you considered why you work? Have you considered what the divine perspective is on work? Ergon, is the Greek word for it, has a connotation of this active zeal, this with social and ethical implications as a part of a divine plan for a human life. Right? In other words, Another way to look at it is work is God's, one of God's own attributes. When we are introduced to God in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how we get introduced to God when we read our Bibles. There's a work of creation. We meet God as a God who works. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we see on the seventh day, God, uh-oh, again, that didn't make it. We see God completing his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he has done. Work is inherently part of God's own attribute. Even the creation of mankind is as a reflection. Mankind is created in the image of God and His likeness, right? This is how He made us. But even as a purpose of that, do you see the implication in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5? I think that made it up there. No, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet grown, for Yahweh God has not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no man to work, cultivate the ground. You see the implication. Then Yahweh God took the man, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, creates Adam. He, took, he takes the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it, which implies work. God's own attribute. The very reason why you were made is to work. But one of the least appealing things for us to do is to do work to the point where the statistics I shared with you earlier says, I want to work in a place that I like to do. I want to enjoy my work. That is one of your generation's ambition, higher than everybody else. Why is it so hard 
to find something that you like to work because of sin. You follow this strand in Genesis chapter 3, you notice sin enters the world and this work that God has given to man as a reflection of his own attribute that he was he was delighting in it becomes a curse you must toil he tells adam and work hard and fight with the ground that is a result of the curse that's why you don't like it that's why i don't like it why most people don't like it. Yet, God's word in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 11 says, Make it your ambition that you work with your hands. Here in a sense, Paul is drawing on this ambition to work that flows from the obedience of faith. He's, we are restored in Christ as, as a church. We no longer are under the curse of the first Adam, we are under the redemptive work and the grace and love of Jesus Christ. That's why you're sitting here. He is the last Adam. So under the new covenant, we are no longer under the curse of the first Adam. So when we work, we're not working as if this is a, oh man, this is a result of God's curse. That curse has been removed for us through Christ Jesus. The Redeemer has come. He has actually struck the serpent's head and defeated the power of sin. We live in the presence of sin, but we are not under the power of sin. We're no longer under the punishment of sin, but we live in the presence of sin. Yet, we have a new covenant through Christ. So we must work from that place. Paul is drawing back to the redeemed people of God to have this ambition to work that flows from the obedience of faith in Christ Jesus. Understanding that your work and your love are intertwined. They are closely related. Work is the way by which you express your love. This is why Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2 and verse, um, verse 3, he talks about remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. Right? You see a work of faith and labor of love. You notice that language. This is how closely intertwined with your work and your love and your faith, they are so tied up together. I believe this is why he even inserts work with your own hands, denoting the willingness that you have to work. You're willing to work. That your hands are seen as an expression of your will. Your mind wills to do something, right? How do you show that you're willing to do something? 
by working with your hands. We have not come to a place, I don't think we'll ever will, to where you can think about something and it automatically appears. If you want to type an email, you must actually use your fingers. You, you, must, you must first be willing to send an email or send a text, but you must actually do it. So with your hands doesn't mean everybody in here needs to be a, a plumber or, or a carpenter or an HVAC person or whatever. I'm, that's not what it implies. It implies that as Christians, you must express your willingness to work as an expression of God's love that is bestowed to you. So when you are working, this ambition that you must have as a Christian to work, you are gladly expressing your willingness to work because you understand the eternal divine mandate and the expression of your love. Let's quickly take a look at why Paul says this in verse 12. You can see the two benefits that Paul presents us. So that you will walk properly towards outsiders and to, be, to not be in any need. It's very simple. You are to have this ambition as as a Christian, as a church, to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, to work with your own hands, so that your behavior, your manner of life, is characterized by grace, dignity, and decency. Those of us, those people that are treated with dignity and grace, and there's a sense of decency that comes, that naturally flows out of this ambition to live a quiet life to attend to your own business, to be the best that you are, and to work with your own hands, to willingly work. That adds value to you. You will be able to properly work towards outsiders even. When outsiders that are not Christians look at this church, they don't see a bunch of lazy bums laying around, meddling in other, everybody's business, on Twitter gossiping and putting everybody's business out there or on Instagram, and they're constantly on TikTok and just lazy, don't want to work. They're not in their own business. They just... Is that what the world sees? Do you see how dishonorable that is to God that His children may live in this way? So how beneficial it is for the witness of the gospel we may even have by pursuing this ambition as a church. Secondly, he said, you must make it your ambition so that you will not be in any need. You'd have a life that will, buy, uh, that will not be lacking in anything necessary for your life. Your basic necessities will be met, is what Paul is saying. If you make it your ambition to do this, your basic necessities 
that will not stress you out will be met. Oh, but, you know, I, I work and I have a job and I do this and I'm relatively quiet. I'm trying to do this, but there's stressors out there. Sure, but are those stressors coming from the basic necessities of life? Or is it something that is that you want to have, which is not necessarily evil inherently, but is it because you want to maintain a certain lifestyle? Would be the question. Uh, that would be the question I would ask that person. And even if so, God is still sovereign over those stressors. Turn with me to Second Thessalonians, real quick. And let's take a look at this practical illustration, even in that church to which Paul is writing. 2 Thessalonians chapter, six, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Here is a practical illustration of what Paul is saying in his letter to this church, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Now, we command you, notice that word again, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who walks in unruly manner, and not according to the tradition which they received from us. You notice that unruly manner? For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we did not act in an unruly manner among you. This quiet life in contrast with this unruly manner. Verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Notice that Paul and Silas and Timothy and whomever else was with him was in the church, in the position of leadership, in the position of serving. They were minding attending to their own business and working with their own hands. They set an example. Not only did they command us, but they set an example to the church. Notice this, verse 9, not because we do not have the authority, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would imitate us. For even when we were with you, we used to command this to you. If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. You don't work, you don't eat. Very simple. Now, there are conditions whereby you can't you might not have a job because the job market is bad or there's a disability or there's some something that's not what he's talking about if anyone is not willing to work you notice that word willing 
And I said, this is why Paul says, work with your own hands as an expression of your willingness to work. This glad willingness to work, you see that as well. For we hear that some among you are walking in an unruly manner, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. A lot of activities, a lot of meddling. Hey, did you hear that? Hey, did you hear that? This is what busybody means. Like literally, I, I went and looked up this word. I was just like, oh man, they didn't have, I'm glad God didn't give them social media because they would have been all over the place. This church, and they're meddling everywhere. They just, they can't sit still. They're going all over the place and just saying one thing to this one, saying another thing to this one. If you're busy doing work, and minding your own business, you have no time to be a busybody. You see that, right? You see how that illustration is coming to, to life, everything that we have been discussing. Some among you are walking in an unruly manner. That is to say, they're not receiving any correction from anybody, and they're just doing whatever they want to do in the context of the church. And they're not doing no work, but they act like they're doing something. They act like busy bodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that working with quietness they eat their own bread. This is you, Paul says, we command you and we encourage you. We come alongside you to, 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 to go along with us even. That's what a command is a verbal communication. Exhortation is to come alongside and encourage somebody, like give a nudge on the back even. To do what? Work with quietness and eat their own bread. This is what he illustrates for us and gives us an insight as to what the church's ambition ought to be. Is that your ambition? Have you set your ambition to be consistent with what God's Word teaches us? To lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your own hands. Again, I say to you, we need the sovereign help of God to accomplish this. You can't do it on your own. I get it. It's, Im it's impossible to do this outside of God's grace, outside of the leading of the Spirit, outside of being in Christ. Pray with me.
Lord and our Father, we are thankful that you've spoken to us by your word. We are thankful that you have expressed to us in a way that we can comprehend what your will is for our lives, is to sanctify us both body and soul, and you do so by giving us your spirit. And it is a result of your love that causes us to do this. Lord, out of this love, out of your spirit, you give us an ambition give us this deep desire to seek out your ways and your will. Lord, we pray that our, it is our ambition, that we make it our ambition to lead a quiet life that is quieted by the knowledge of your sovereign hand in our work, in our lives. to attend to our own business, to understand that you have fearfully and wonderfully made us and designed us to glorify you and to work with our own hands, with willingness and obedience and joy in service of you towards by showing love for one another. Father, would you show us that we are desperately in need of your grace, your presence, and your spirit to accomplish this ambition? Would you help us, not only today, but the rest of our lives, to depend and rely on you, and your sovereignty to pursue you and to pursue our ambitions that you have set before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.